The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute in Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed, and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy, with a lineup including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman, and Murray Sabrin. Register now at Mises.org FL23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. This week, I don't have a guest. I had tried to line up uh, an expert on this particular topic. We couldn't get the schedules to sync, but it's fine because I want to take you folks through a demonstration that I first wrote up for the website lourockwell.com way back when I was in grad school. Uh, so this was in either late 90s or early 2000s. I don't remember exactly when I wrote it. Uh, and it has to do with plea bargaining. And so in the United States right now, a very high percentage, like over 90%, according to some statistics I've seen, of cases. I don't know if that's like at all levels or if it's just like federal ones or things like that. So, but, but again, I've, I've seen um, statistics saying that some 90% plus of uh, guilty verdicts are achieved where the defendant confesses guilt to the charges or to some subset of them in exchange for a plea deal. And so I, and that I have always found to be very troubling. And so I want to walk you through why that is in case you've never seen this demonstration before, because I think a pretty strong case can be made and you'll see in a minute when I go to do it, because it's, I kind of take you through, uh, uh, through the back door as it were. And I, I describe it in a different approach and then you end up seeing it in a new light, or at least that's what my hope is going to be. So the particular news hook for this, though, is uh, in regards to the January 6th, uh, some would call it insurrection, some would call it a riot, some would call it a legitimate protest to raise questions about how the election was stolen from the rightful president, Donald Trump. People have different views based a lot on their prior worldview as to what happened on that day. But regardless of what you think went down, the uh, several of the members of the Proud Boys group received very stiff sentences. And then uh, it was once the sentence for the uh, the leader of the of the group, at least as being alleged here, Enrique Tario came out, then it was released to the public to show what the plea deals had been offered to. So the, what I'm looking at is one, two, three, four, five of the proud boys who were convicted. And so this is what I is, was the news. hook, as I say, so just to give you the specifics here, I was looking at it from a Justin Wolfers tweet. And if you don't know who Justin Wolfers is, he is an Australian economist, not to be confused with an Austrian economist, uh, he, he teaches at University of Michigan, but anyway, he's he comments a lot on uh, Facebook, so he's a, an economist in the public eye, and he thought this was you know the opportunity for chortling. 
because somebody had tweeted out saying, before trial, USA offered Proud Boys plea deals revealed yesterday. They passed, meaning the Proud Boys passed on the plea deals. The result, and so it's showing the, the original offer and then what the sentence was. So again, just to make sure I'm not losing you, these six uh, Proud Boys from Tario, and then I, I might be mispronouncing, Nordean, Biggs, Real, and Pizzola, that it's showing, they were originally, I, I believe, in 2022, were offered, you know, when they were first being charged with this stuff, that behind the scenes they were offered, or their lawyers were, you know, shown the deal that they presented to their clients to say, just plead guilty to this, and then here's what the sentencing guidelines would be to what we're asking you to plead guilty to. Otherwise, we're going to trial. And so for these five defendants, they all elected to say, no, no, I want to go to trial. And so here's what the disparity, and, and these were all convicted, found guilty at trial, various charges, including like seditious conspiracy, things like that. And so here's the, the sentences they got. So Tario, again, who is alleged to have been, or I guess I'll now say was convicted as being the ringleader of at least one cell in the January 6th insurrection coup attempt, uh, he was originally offered 9 to 11 years, and then the sentence he got when he was found guilty at the trial was 22 years. Nordian was offered six to eight years, went to, said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not confessing, I'm, I'm innocent, let's go to trial. He was convicted and got 18 years. Biggs was offered six to eight years, went to trial, was convicted, got 17 years. Real, if I'm pronouncing it right, was offered six to seven years, went to trial, got 15 years. And Pizzola was offered four to five years, went to trial, got a sentence of 10 years. Okay, so for each of those individuals, the actual sentence they got was at least double, and in some cases, more than double, of the high end of what they were told, if you agree to this plea deal, you know, this is the upper end of what you're probably going to get. And so they were, again, doubled. Uh, and, and these aren't small sentences. It's not that, oh, gee, instead of doing two weeks community service, now you got to do four weeks. This is a difference. Uh, I'm looking here at least at least five years. Yeah, there's the lowest difference is five years. And for the other four people, the increase in the sentence, like the marginal effect because they went to trial is more than five years. All right. And, uh, the case of Tario, it meant an 11 year difference that they were saying, if you take the plea, you're probably going to get nine to 11 years. And instead he got sentenced to 22. So Justin Wolfers thought this was funny. And he said, guys, it's time. He retweeted that and said, guys, it's time for some game theory. Ha ha. So what he meant was look ahead and realize, oh, you're going to be convicted and get these huge sentences. So just take the plea deal. All right. And then I thought that was not a joking matter. And so my tweet, and we'll, of course, link to this if people love to see Twitter battles. Well, it's not a battle. It was just me shooting peas at Justin Wolfers. He didn't respond to me. Was to say our justice system and then a colon quotation marks. Like, I'm now speaking on behalf of the justice system. Hey, defendants, oh, sure, you have a right to trial by your peers, but if you exercise that right, then we'll punish you by making you serve double the time. And then I said, oh, and Justin Wolfers thinks, ha-ha, that's funny. Okay, so what's interesting is uh, the some of the Proud Boys lawyers 
made exactly that case. That so I'm looking at um, they were calling it a, a trial tax. Okay, so it's I think it's at least two of them. Yeah, it's uh, let's see. So I'm reading here from a news article. High-ranking Proud Boys members Joe Biggs and Zachary Real plan to argue that the government imposed an unconstitutional trial tax on them because they received sentences longer than those outlined in proposed plea deals prosecutors offered to them long before their seditious conspiracy convictions. The plea offers were made public by Biggs and Real's attorney, Norman Pattis, in a new filing on Wednesday, which claimed the prosecutors punished them for having asserted their Sixth Amendment rights. And so this is now the, what the lawyer wrote in the filing. In effect, the defendants were punished because they demanded their right to a trial, Pattis argued in the filing. Okay, so uh, let me, at this point, I think it's a good time for me to just pull back from the particulars of this case or these cases, this incident, and um, just give you folks the, the general argument. I'm just tweaking it a little bit, refining it from what I wrote way back when. Okay, so this is something, it, it's not that, oh, the people that were on Donald Trump's side did something and now I'm trying to come up with a way to counter the progressive narrative. That That's not what's going on here. This is something, like I say, that I wrote up for LouRockwell.com 20 plus years ago. Um, but now it's, it's re- as relevant today as it was back then. So let me just go ahead and walk you through this. All right. So if you've never heard this, just Clear your mind. Don't worry about it. I'm not trying to trick you into something. I just want to walk you through this logical progression. Okay, so first thing is I want to ask you, without context, just me asking you out of the blue, would you rather that the government fine you $10,000 or put you in prison for one year? I think most people listening to my voice right now you know, unless you were young, like if you, let's say you're an adult, right? If you're a kid, then, you know, that's kind of like your parents are going to have to pay for it. But if you're an adult, I think just about everybody would say, you wouldn't even have to think two seconds about that. You say, oh, I would much rather be fined $10,000 than to have to serve a year in prison. And um, again, the only people that that probably wouldn't be true for are people who can't work and you know they just they can't come up with ten thousand dollars but most adults who are uh, able-bodied in the united states earn more than ten thousand dollars in a year for one thing so clearly keeping your freedom more than pays for itself like a lot of people they might view their job as a as a prison sentence and their and their boss is a warden but they mean that figuratively most people would much rather have to go work then have to be in prison for a year, okay? And a lot of people make a lot more than 10000 anyway, all right? And then there's, you know, you got kids and things like that, right? Lots of reasons. I think for most people, the overwhelming majority, again, if you are offered a choice, would you rather the government fine you $10,000 or put you in prison for a year? Most people wouldn't even have to think about that, especially, it's not just financial stuff. It's very bad things can happen to you when you're in prison, that are less likely to happen to you if you stay out, okay? So for various reasons, most people wouldn't even have to think about that. A $10,000 fine is much more attractive than spending a year in prison. Okay, now let me change the scenario a little bit and, and ask you your thoughts. Suppose some crime occurs. Maybe um, 
the owner of a, a laundromat comes to work and it's in kind of an urban area. It's kind of a rough neighborhood comes to work first thing Monday morning and sees that all of his windows have been smashed and people went inside and ransacked uh, the premises. And, you know, he had, there wasn't too much of value, but things were, you know, a lot of property was destroyed and there were some valuable things in the back that were taken. And um, there are groups of kids that, that stand near there. Like people, it's kind of well known in the neighborhood that, Oh yeah, this group of kids kind of hangs out at night. And so the police think surely these kids saw what happened. Okay. And so they take them in, they put them in separate rooms and they're interrogating them saying, you know, and, and they, after a while they, they come up, the police come up with who they think committed this crime, or at least a person that they think was involved. They maybe not don't know everybody, but they're pretty sure. Yeah. We think it's this guy. And so they go to each of these teenagers or young adults that are in the separate interrogation rooms. And they say to each of them, look at, we know that this guy and they name him was involved in the crime. Right. And the person says, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I I didn't see nothing. No, I I no idea what you're talking about. I I don't, I don't want to talk. And so the, you know, the police, the detectives all leave the rooms and they go back and they huddle and they try to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? And they say, okay, new plan. And they each go in there, or if it's just like two guys working the case, they sequentially meet with all the different possible witnesses. And they say, tell you what, here's a piece of paper. They slack across. Here's a pen. If you write out as a sworn affidavit that you saw so-and-so break the windows and go into that laundromat, because we know, come on, we both know he did. And you're just not telling us you're not cooperating. But if you go ahead and do the right thing and write down what you saw that night, namely that he broke the windows and went in there and started, uh, you know, smashing stuff and grabbing valuables. We will pay you $10,000 in exchange for you giving th- that lawful testimony, you know, because you, because we know you saw that. That's what you saw. So just write down what you saw. And I want to be clear. This is me talking, not the detective talking to the kid. I'm commenting on my hypothetical scenario here. The detective is not saying write down what you saw and we'll give you $10,000. And the kid is thinking, oh, he's kind of bribing me, nod, nod, wink, wink. No, no, the detective is literally saying, if you write that you saw so-and-so, the guy we named, commit that crime, we will pay you $10,000. If you write out that you didn't see him commit the crime or you were there all night and didn't notice anything, we will not pay you any money. Okay, so it's it's not that it's vague and it's sort of understood. It is quite explicitly an offer that we will give you $10,000 if you give us the testimony that we want from you. Otherwise, you get nothing. Okay, so let me pause there. How do people feel about that? Do, if, if it turned out that 90 plus percent of convictions in the United States were achieved where a crucial part of the evidence was eyewitness testimony obtained when the person originally told the investigators, no, I I don't know who committed that crime. I didn't see anything. And then the police came back and offered the person a $10,000 payment in exchange for agreeing that the person they told them did it and said, yes, you're right. You're right. Upon second thought, my, my memory was is coming back to me now. You're right. It was that person. 
and they get $10,000. And, and you found out that 90 plus percent of convictions in the United States critically depended on testimony that was purchased in that manner. Would that sit well with you? I think most people w- would say, no, that would be weird. Okay. And again, just to be clear, we're not talking about there's a trial and someone's flying in an expert witness and the person has expenses and it's like, well, hey, you know, I'm I'm a forensics expert or I'm a fingerprint person or I, I, I do DNA analysis and I have a job and stuff. And if you want me to come in and take a week off from work to go to this trial, I need to become that's not what we're talking about. Even though you could get into that and say what? No, we're saying the police themselves tell somebody, "We think so and so did this." Do you agree? They say no, and then they say, "If you change your mind and write out that you did see the person we just fingered, then we'll give you ten thousand dollars." That's what I'm talking about. And if it turned out that ninety percent plus of convictions involved that in the process, I think just about everybody would say that would be an outrageous miscarriage of justice. There's no way that that's a good idea. And let me push you, if that is your reaction, why? Just think through what is it about that scenario that would make you leery? And I think possibly among other things, you know, could say it's a waste of ta- taxpayer money or it's a misuse of stolen funds if you're an extreme libertarian who thinks taxation is theft. You'd say the government's you know, we, we don't like them do, <laughs> doing anything with tax dollars, let alone going and paying people to change their mind about who they saw commit a crime. But besides the, the fact of whether the government has the rightful use of that money, which is kind of a, you know, idiosyncratic, extreme libertarian thing, I think the average person, regardless of their political views, would have a problem with that system because the whole point of having eyewitness testimony is to give what we hope is unbiased information so that the system we've set up, the judicial system, is more likely to convict the people who are truly guilty and is less likely to convict people who are innocent. That's more likely to acquit the people who have been falsely charged with something. That's the whole reason we have eyewitness testimony in the first place. And so if you're if people originally tell the authorities one thing and then change their mind after they've been offered a payment, a large payment, with the explicit condition that they need to change what they originally said, I think a lot of people would say that is inviting a lot of false eyewitness testimony, which defeats the whole purpose of getting the testimony in the first place, right? Okay. I belabored that a lot just to because it's going to be important down the road. I really want you to think through assuming – you don't like that scenario and you think that would be a horrible way to run a justice system that I want you to, to think about why, because that's, you know, that's important. Okay. Let me now go through a couple of tweaks of that original scenario. Suppose that similar story, somebody broke into that laundromat, caused a lot of damage, stole some valuable things there were a group of kids that hang out on that corner night after night. Surely some of them must have seen something and they're not saying anything. So the police have them all separated. And then the police now come back to them after the original bout of non-cooperation and the police say, okay, tell you what, 
here's a piece of paper, here's a pen. You write out that you saw the person we named commit that crime, you know, smash those windows and enter the premises. And if you don't, because we know you're lying, that we know you saw him do it. If you don't agree with us and write that out that you saw it with your sworn affidavit, we're going to fine you $10,000. All right, so I think most people would agree that would be even worse of a, of a procedure than the first thing I described, right? If you agree just offering people a $10,000 payment in exchange for them to change what they say they saw would be bad, to then flip it and say, if you don't change what you just told us to name the person that we think did it, we're going to fine you $10,000. That's, again, much worse because in the first scenario, the person can just refuse, right? If, if they really, either because they really don't think the police have the right suspect and that the person that the police are saying did it, they truly believe, no, that person didn't do it, or because it's he's their buddy or they're afraid of that guy and they don't want there to be any kind of, you know, uh, retaliation for the, them to test, whatever the reason may be. If the police just say, if you change your mind, we'll give you $10,000, that's just a windfall that the person is could renounce. So you can kind of maintain your status quo just by telling the police, no thanks, I don't want that money. I'm sticking to my original story. I didn't see nothing. Whereas in the second scenario now, the person can't maintain their status quo. If they don't go along with what the police want, they're out $10,000. And you know that could be a big hit to their household. That could be a big deal depending on their financial situation. Okay, so even if they're somebody who, quote, wanted to do the right thing, again, if we're, if we're thinking about people who truly don't think the police have the right suspect, then now it's a lot, it's a lot easier to walk away from an offer of an extra 10000 you weren't planning on than to have the 10000 you may have been critically depending on now be taken from you. Okay, so a lot of people might think, yeah, I feel bad about it, but I'm going to go ahead and, and sign this affidavit saying that I saw so-and-so break into that store because I just that would, that would devastate our family right now if we lost $10,000. Okay. Let me tweak it again. Same basic setup. There was a crime. Somebody broke into this laundromat, wrecked the place, stole some valuable stuff. Group of teenagers, young adults who surely saw something. Originally, they tell the police, didn't see anything, sorry. The police huddle, the detectives go back and one by one now change the offer. And they say, tell you what, here's a piece of paper, here's a pen. You write down the per that you saw the person we named commit that crime or else we are putting you in prison for a year. Now maybe, have we jogged your memory? Do you remember seeing that guy do it? Now that we've uh, explained the ramifications of your continued non-cooperation and what we know is lying. Do you think maybe now you remember seeing that guy do it? Or are you going to go ahead and spend a year in prison thinking about it some more? Okay, so now recall what we established at, this, at the outset of this little demonstration. I think just about everybody would agree if the government could either fine you $10,000 or put you in prison for a year, you would way prefer to get fined $10,000 that the threat of going to prison for a year is a much worse, a much scarier punishment than just being fined $10,000. So if you agree with the original 
view that offering $10,000 as a bonus payment, if people would just write down that they saw what the police want them to write, that that would be a miscarriage of justice. Then clearly, if the police threatened to fine people $10,000, that's a, a worse miscarriage of justice. And then if instead of threatening to fine them, they said, if you don't write, change what you told us yesterday and now change your eyewitness testimony to name the person that we think did it, we're going to put you in prison for a year. That should be ridiculously, ludicrously, over-the-top outrageous. Because now very few people are going to be willing to stand up to that level of uh, leverage, that, that amount of coercion being threatened upon them, right? It's, it's one thing to say, no, no, no I, don't, I don't need an extra $10,000. I'm going to stick with my story. It's a lot harder to say, I would rather pay a $10,000 fine than change what I told you. But you have to be a true martyr in most cases to say, uh-uh, I'm sticking with my original story. Go ahead and throw me in prison for a year. Okay, so again, I've, I think if you agreed with that first one, that it would make you feel uncomfortable if the police routinely got suspects to name the person they thought did a crime but in changing their original testimony that if they if they got them to do that by offering them a deal in which they paid them ten thousand dollars i think you know when i said that and you didn't kind of see where i was going with this originally perhaps just about everybody would agree yeah that would be a nutty system if a key foundational element that the overwhelming majority of convictions in this country are achieved when one of the important witnesses that was, you know, their testimony was really a key part of the conviction was paid $10,000 to change their original story to say that, that would make you feel uncomfortable. Well, now if I told you, suppose 90% plus of the convictions in this country are achieved where one of the key witnesses changed their original stance and agreed that the person the police think did the crime um, and they changed it and said, yep, originally I didn't think that person committed the crime, but now I do. I agree with the police. That person did commit the crime. And it turned out that in 90% plus of the cases, it was because that person, that witness to the events in question knew was that if you don't say that you're going to get a year in prison, if you don't agree with what the police, with who the police said did the crime then you know you should just be outraged. No, that would be a dystopian nightmare, that kind of a system, right? And I've just described the United States of America. That is what the plea deal system is, where witnesses to a crime, and sometimes the person the police tell the witness did the crime is the person they're talking to, right? So that's but, – and, that, and that's why earlier I said, you, you know, think through why is this unfair, Okay. Um, and the reason was, remember, among, you know, quibbles about the use of tax dollars in one of the scenarios, but the main reason that I think just about everybody would be very uncomfortable if the police went around and routinely paid $10,000 cash bounty payments or check to people who were willing to change their eyewitness testimony that made people uncomfortable because it meant, oh, how can we trust that testimony? 
right? That that means nothing to us now. The fact that someone said, oh, yeah, I saw that guy do it, and the police paid him $10,000, and they only paid him $10,000 because he said that. They wouldn't have paid it if he said something else. That makes that testimony not have a lot of information content. We We shouldn't take that as grounds for thinking that, oh, yeah, so now we're more – uh, it's more likely in our mind that that person did commit the crime because of that eyewitness testimony, right? If you found out that it was purchased. So now if you find out that 90% plus of these convictions are achieved because a key witness, namely in many cases, the defendant himself or herself said, yeah, you're right. Originally I said I didn't do it, but upon further consideration, I'm agreeing I did do it. Because they knew if I don't agree with you, I'm going to get a worse sentence. I'm going to spend more time in prison. Then that should make you question their confession for the same reason. Okay. So if they did do it, you might say, well, I don't feel bad for the person because they're guilty. But the whole point is the reason we have these systems set up with evidence and eyewitness testimony and people confessing to crimes and such is hopefully that that allows the system to better uh, hone in on when there's a crime to figure out who actually committed it and put the right person in prison or find the person, you know, the correct person, whatever the, if it's a monetary fine or whatever is in terms of the punishment. That's why we have all these procedures in place. In the Soviet Union, if you've read the Gulag Archipelago, they had all kinds of confessions and the way they got them, right? So it, the people who were going along with that system, they weren't thinking, well, I don't know what they were thinking, but officially it was not that, oh yeah, we're just randomly grabbing people and torturing them. It was, we are grabbing enemies of Stalin, people who are trying to overthrow, seditious conspiracists <laughs> who are trying to overthrow the regime and prevent the rightful person from being in power. And how do we know that they're guilty of these crimes? Well, because their relatives told us. Now, it's true. We did all sorts of unspeakable things to their relatives and said, we know, you know, your father was plotting against Stalin. Confess or we're going to crush your testicles. Like that's that's in the book. I'm not just making up lascivious stuff. And, you know, lo and behold, the interrogators got very good. Some of them were very creative and came up with new ways to inflict suffering and pain on people. And some things, you know, they were like, huh, look at this. You wouldn't have even thought this would be a big deal, but apparently people can't stand this. This, you know, I can get people to talk faster than you can. Right. It was, it'd be like a game among some of them to see what novel thing could they come up with to get somebody to confess that, oh yeah, my eight-year-old daughter, she hates Stalin. Yep. Yep. Go ahead and stop doing this to me. Just stop. Yep. I'll, I'll say whatever you want. And oh, look at all these enemies of Stalin. They're all over the place. They're coming through the woodwork. All right. We can see in a system like that that that's nutty and that there was no reason to suppose those confessions and accusations against family members and such meant anything because they were achieved under extreme duress. So likewise here, Justin Wolfers is saying it's simple game theory. Right? He didn't say, hey, guys, you know you did this, why don't you, you know, tell them the truth is the right thing to do. That's not what he said. He said simple game theory, meaning you're going to be convicted and get, it's better to do 11 years than to do 22 years. All right, so that's the basic um, critique. 
that I have of the of plea bargaining. Like, so I'm not upset when I first wrote my Lou Rockwell piece. Some people misunderstood it because I think the title I gave it was "The Crime Known as Plea Bargaining," and people thought I meant the defendant who takes the plea deal is doing something wrong. And that, that's not what I mean. I'm not talking about that. I understand why, from the defendant's point of view, if you know, and especially if their lawyers telling them like, "Yeah, this goes to trial. They're probably going to convict you, and you're going to get ten years." So if I were you, yeah, I would take this deal. You know, three years, and you've already got time served, and blah blah blah. I get that, but that's my point. The fact that it is, quote, rational for most defendants to not fight it and just go ahead and take the deal is a strike against the system because it means even people who think they're they're innocent, it's kind of dumb for them to go to trial, or at the very least, it's extremely risky. Okay, so let me now um, that I've made that case pretty... Uh, carefully and slowly. Some of you may have thought it was too slow. Let me now circle back because I have encountered some objections to you know the, this my demonstration, right? Because it it seems like if you went along for the ride there, if you agreed with that first scenario, and I just kept clearly making it worse. If the first scenario was bad, well, then the last scenario is awful, and yet even when I do that, and a lot of people are with me the whole way still when I say, okay, right, so you're outraged at our current system, and they're not. They just, eh. And so let me now, so I think partly it is just because most people don't want to think they live in a horrible system, and come on, it can't be as bad as you're saying. Like, yeah, you're kind of sitting there and analyzing it a certain way, and, and so here's some of the, I think, things that people come up with to try to say, yeah, we get what you're saying, Murphy, but it's not actually that bad, and here's why. All right, so here's some. So one thing is they'll say, look it, it's true in your little scenario there, Murphy, if the police have just randomly grabbed some guy and then told all the witnesses, hey, we think this guy did it, don't you agree? Here's $10,000, or if you don't agree, we're going to throw you in prison. And, da, da, da. and it really is just some random guy they grabbed because, hey, somebody's got to be found guilty for this crime because the, you know, the DA's running, up, running for re-election or something, and and the, the mayor's breathing down our necks and somebody broke into this laundromat and the, the guy's an alderman or something and, you know, he's the owner of the store and he's really demanding a scalp. Here, grab this guy. Maybe he did it. But yeah, if that's what's going on, that would be horribly unjust. But in the real world, these apologists for the current system will say, the police aren't waking up every morning to say, let's go frame an innocent guy for a bunch of unsolved crimes today. That's not what they're doing. Among other things, besides just their inherent sense of justice and not wanting to convict an innocent person, if they do convict an innocent person, then that means the actual criminal is still out in the streets and going to hurt more people or commit more property crime. And so why would the police do that? Right. So, yeah, sure, mistakes can occasionally be made. But in general, the only reason, like if you watch cop dramas and stuff, when the police are going into the interrogation rooms and leaning on people to say, come on, here, here, take this deal. This is the best one you're going to get. Frankie, the, uh, the strangler <laughs> committed this crime. We all know that, that it's, they're not grabbing, you know, some little old lady whose only crime is that sometimes she doesn't quite hit the note in the church choir, right? That's not what's going on here. These are unsavory characters. And you know what? 
in the grand scheme of things, even if they didn't do this particular crime, they probably did something. So these are not Boy Scouts that are getting sent to the slammer on the basis of coerced testimony. Right? So people could say stuff like that. Okay, so if that's true, if that's what your position is, then I want to say, what's the point of having trials at all? What you're effectively saying is we can trust the police to go gather the facts when there's a crime and go out and grab the truly guilty party. You're giving a heck of a lot of discretion to the police if you're saying that it's okay once the police figure they know who the real you know, guilty person is, but they know if we just went to trial right now with what we have, like with the evidence that has made us, the police, pretty sure that this guy did it. But you know what? Oh, we can't prove it in court. If we, if we go, because by the way, folks, in case you haven't read this stuff, a lot of times if you ask somebody, you know, who's defending the, the plea deal system, They'll say things like, oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good scenario because it saves the government money and, and time, like to have to go to trial. And also it eliminates the uncertainty because there's always a chance if they go to trial, even if they think they have an airtight case against the defendant, you know, there could be some crazy juror or who knows what. Something could come up unexpected on the witness stand that they weren't uh, planning on that all of a sudden sways the jury, even though it's kind of silly and uh you know, or or the judge even could something could come up, and the judge might have a grudge against the prosecutor for some other thing, and you know, give a real low set. Who knows? So there's a lot more certainty from the government's perspective if they can just get the person to confess to the, you know and, and take the plea deal. Then boom, they can move on with their lives. You know, get them in jail for whatever the sentence is that they agreed to. Okay, so even in making that case, they are admitting there are people that if this case went to trial, they might be acquitted, right? So it's a gamble. Yes, it's obviously a huge gamble on the part of the defendant. It's a way bigger deal, you know, that your whole life basically is at stake or life as you knew it. But even from the government's perspective, it's a gamble to go to trial because they could be acquitted or they might just get a really low sentence compared to what the crimes were that you were charging them with. And that's offered an argument offered in favor of this current system, right? So my point is that even there, it's, if you're saying, so that's why I like to let the police have this option. It's not the police in combination with the district attorney and whatever, to have this this option where, you know, the government can kind of lean on people and just, hey, this is just be cleaner for everybody involved. Look, let's get on with our lives. Go ahead and admit this, that they're, you have to wonder, well, wait a minute, why Why is it, if, if it's so airtight, then how come there's a chance of acquittal? All right, so what we see is the only cases where it really makes, if it, in other words, if it makes a real big difference that we got that confession from the person versus going to trial, then doesn't that kind of demonstrate that without that confession, the police and the DA and whatever don't have an airtight case necessarily. And so if you're saying, okay, yeah, sure, but I don't, I trust the police would never use this mechanism to coerce testimony from others in order to get uh, a conviction unless they thought they had the right guy. So again, that's my point is, okay, so then let's just dispense with the court system altogether. Cause you're basically saying you're allowing the police to use coercion 
to be able to meet the threshold of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a, a trial of your, in front of your peers, from a jury of your peers. And we're kind of subverting that whole thing, that that's, that's just a farce, that really what you're saying is once the police are pretty sure they got the right guy, that's really all I care about. Whatever, whatever means they need to use to put that person away is fine with me because I generally trust the police aren't out there deliberately framing innocent people. And the detectives on the streets, they know that neighborhood way better than I do. You know, they talk to people, they know who the, the players are in that sector. And I really don't think they're going around framing genuinely innocent people for stuff they had nothing to do with. Okay. And it's fine if you, if you think that. I'm not saying you're nuts. But what I am saying is, why do we go through this farce of having a legal system then? Why not just let the police lock up whoever they want? And uh, I think if you pause and say, well, you know, because we kind of need checks and balances, okay, and once you go down that road, then you can see why, all right. So given that we do want there to be jury trials and we want the people deciding whether somebody committed a crime or not to be a different arm from the, the people whose job it is to go take people into custody using force that we want those to be separate <laughs> institutions and certainly not to have them all just be government employees, right? That's kind of the function of having a jury trial from your peers is that you're not being charged from by these outsiders who don't share your interest. And certainly you wouldn't want to be just tried by 12 people who work for the department of justice. That wouldn't do you any good. Um, you know, once you, understand why is it that in the western tradition we have this notion of a separate trial and juries and such then you can see why it kind of defeats the purpose then if key eyewitness testimony including confessions can be obtained through what is clearly coercion okay now let me mention um on my podcast the bob murphy show a while ago i had an L.A. prosecutor, his name was Patrick Frey, he came on and he he said that my analysis there was a little bit too glib. So let me just explain some of the nuances. So he was pointing, there could be cases where, like, let's say it's, it's like a mob boss, right? So the mob boss is taking hits out on people and doing stuff. The guys in the FBI, like, they, they know he is, okay? But they can't prove it in court because he's real careful. He doesn't do anything over the phone. Everything is per, you know, in person. They regularly sweep his uh, interior room, his office, where he has people coming and going, and you know, that's where he gives the orders verbally. Um, you know, they sweep it for bugs all the time, so you know it's it's pretty hard to, to pin something on this guy. And so they grab one of his underlings that they do have, you know, lesser crimes, and, and they can show the person like, look, we got you on video camera breaking open this ATM or whatever it is, okay? And so we got you for this. If we throw the book at you, you're going to do five to seven years. Tell you what, though, if you cooperate with us, we'll, we'll get rid of that. And so here, what Patrick was pointing out to me is the cooperation isn't just the way I was presenting it, that you take out a piece of paper and you write out, oh, yes, I agree with everything you guys just said, that my boss, you know, Jimmy the Hammer, really did all those things. And he did take out those, you know, those three other mobsters last year, like you alleged. 
that's you saying that's not necessarily what it is. It could be that like the guy puts on a wire and then goes in with some stage thing to get the mob boss on tape saying, okay, yeah, so-and-so, you know, he's getting a little big for his britches. Frank, why don't you go take care of him? Okay. That was my mobster impression. Right. So in a situation like that, okay, fair enough. I'm still not endorsing that and saying that's a good practice for the government to engage in, but I'm saying, okay, yes. So my little glib demonstration that, Hey, if they had enough evidence to convict the guy, why do they need to coerce testimony from people? That how does that add anything on the margin? Yeah, there could be nuanced situations where when they're leaning on people to cooperate with them, that what the person is doing is not simply writing out a statement, that they could be going and doing something that helps the government get more objective information. Okay, fine. But still, when it's that's not what's driving the figure of 90-plus percent of convictions the United States are achieved through plea deals. That's not what's going on. It's not because... It's some little fish in the mobster organization who's cooperating in a way that gives testimony or evidence other than just their own say-so. Um, that No, most of it is because people are confessing to something that they originally didn't want to confess to. All right. Um, the last thing here, let me touch on and then we'll wrap this up. In terms of, again, why is it that people resist? You know, when I walk through that demonstration, it seems pretty straightforward. And yet they feel like, no, there's there's something you're missing, Bob. I'm, I'm not sure. Originally in this episode, they were calling me Murphy. Now we've become friends and they're calling me Bob. They're very comfortable with me. And they're, they're saying, no. And part of it, I think, is this. They're saying, okay, yeah. In a case where it's somebody testifying against somebody else, like in your scenario about what you kind of rig to make it sound really outrageous that – these teenagers were standing on the corner. The police t- asked them, hey, do you know what happened? And they said, no, nope, I don't see nothing. And then they say, pretty sure that this guy did it, don't you think? And they said, no, nope, I don't think so. And then they start going through, well, what if we gave you $10,000? That there it's unconnected people testifying against somebody else. And so it's clear that unless they had a personal sense of integrity or loyalty to that person, yeah, why wouldn't you throw them under the bus for extra money, okay? And so that's why it seems unfair and you don't trust that testimony. But they're saying in the case of a, of a confession where the police are saying to somebody, we know you did this, and the person said, no, I didn't. I'm not, I'm not agreeing to that. And I said, all right, we'll tell you what. I mean, even there, suppose instead of a, suppose what the plea deal was, was the police said to the person, if you agree and you confess, we will give your family $10,000, and yet if it turned out that 90% plus of the convictions in the United States were achieved because the person who confessed to the crime got a large cash payment you know, to their family or to them that, that was sitting there waiting for them when they did their time and got out. I think a lot of people might look funny at that and say, well, gee, that kind of makes me doubt whether all these confessions were accurate, right? And so again, through the logic, if you say that, then it's kind of game over. Because to then say to them, confess you did this or else we're going to double your prison sentence. You're going to do 22 years instead of 11. That's way more of an inducement than just to say, we'll write you a check even for like $100,000, right? And I think a lot of people, if, if you found out that the government was getting convictions by offering the, def- the accused $100,000 to admit they did it, 
you know, well, I think a lot, a lot of people would say that seems like a screwy system. Okay. But, um, forget, put that stuff aside just on its own terms. I think the reason a lot of people don't find plea deals as objectionable when it's the police making the offer, you know, with the DA combo police making the offer to the defendant to say, you confess, you did it as opposed to testifying against somebody else is that you can just reject it. Right. And that's what somebody said when I was pointing this out on Twitter for the Proud Boys case is somebody um, who I think was a public defender for his day job. And he was saying, I don't have a problem with it. It's pro defendant. It's this, this system. Because he's saying the sentence is what it is. Right. If, if you go to trial, in other words, you have, the, you have your constitutional rights, you have a right to a trial. You don't, you don't need to exercise it. And if you do, you're going to get whatever sentence you're going to get. And so rather than having that uncertainty, right, because, you know, there's huge expense involved and you're trying to fight the government's case, you got to hire lawyers, you know, blah, blah, blah. You don't know, you're just, you're going to have all this anxiety for as long as this tr- process drags out. And then when you finally get the verdict, you don't know it's either going to be you hit the lottery and you're f- acquitted or oosh, your l- middle life is over. You got to go to prison for 22 years or we don't know how much. We're, you're eliminating that uncertainty, and you're just doing a shorter sentence ahead of time, but for sure. And again, it's an option. So the idea is, how can giving defendants an option hurt them? The worst case scenario is they say, no, thank you, and they face the original scenario. So how can it possibly hurt them? Right. So that's the, the case that was being made. And I think that's... Um, I think that's wrong for two reasons. So one is that, um, well, no, actually three things. So, okay, so one thing that's interesting about it is, aren't we worried that there's injustice now going the other way? That if you think these sentences mean something and that our system is fair, or at least has the possibility of being fair, that it's as good as can be given you know, human foibles and stuff, then... If somebody committed a murder and you think they're supposed to get whatever, 20 years in prison, and notice I didn't say something higher than 22, because I think most murderers, I haven't looked up the numbers, but I don't know that most murderers get convicted with as much stuff as, as what uh, Tario did. But certainly it's much worse in our system if you start a website called Silk Road um, than to be a serial killer. So if you think that you know the legal penalties for various crimes make sense or at least we have a system in place to go ahead and do that and that's why when you commit a murder you get a bigger prison sentence than if you get convicted of stealing a pack of gum well then do you want some murderers to get away with a much lower sentence just because they cooperated right like it's that seems like a weird thing where it's kind of like well yeah, the guy, he killed people, but because he saved the government money and trial expenses, then, you know, that, that's why he's serving a lower sentence. Like, so, there, so there's that element that if you actually think the system makes sense and that those penalties being meted out to criminals are ju- justice, it's not obvious that you should be in favor of a system that routinely reduces the sentences, okay? Um, you know, it sort of gets into... If you're Christian, things about 
you know, oh, everyone, every sinner receiving the punishment, that's justice. And then God can be merciful and give grace to others. And so that's, that's grace, but that's not injustice. Okay. So if you want to reason like that and say the government in a sense is kind of like God and they have the ability and the freedom and the right to impose a certain sentence on a murderer, but they can also exercise leniency in, in exchange for cooperation. Okay, fine, but that's an extra wrinkle involved in this. But beyond that, I think a major problem with that approach is you you kind of have to think that the original sentence or the the original, yeah, the, the default, if you go to trial and this is what you get for the crime, if you're convicted, you have to think that's a basically fair process and that that number is reasonable as opposed to that's a completely ridiculous thing where you know, in practice what I think happens is if the government really wants to lean on somebody they can come up with all sorts of things and say we're going to charge you with wire fraud we're going to charge you with this this, and they can come up with an oh if you committed a felony with a handgun then that's an extra blah 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 and so they can come up with this whole list of things that you know, and make it look like if this goes to trial, your life is over. So clearly you want to agree just with this, you know, deal we're offering you. And it's, this is not a fair system. So just to make that point, let me play this short clip from a Reuters uh, story about the alleged ringleader, or now convicted ringleader of at least the Proud Boys contingent involved in the January 6th insurrection. So take a listen. Enrique Tarrio, the former chairman of the far-right group The Proud Boys, was sentenced to 22 years in prison for his role in the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol in 2021. Tarrio was convicted of charges including seditious conspiracy for his role in planning the storming of the Capitol, when thousands of supporters of then-President Donald Trump violently tried to stop Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election which Trump lost and then falsely claimed had widespread fraud. Federal prosecutors said during the sentencing hearing that Tario's plan for January 6th was, quote, a calculated act of terrorism, adding that, quote, he practiced and he endorsed the use of misinformation. They had asked the judge to impose a 33-year prison sentence on Tario, who was not present at the Capitol on the day of the violence because another judge had ordered him to stay out of Washington. Okay, so did you folks catch kind of a key point to that? Tario was not even at the Capitol on January 6th. And it wasn't because he was in a car accident the day before. It was because he had been arrested previously and a judge told him, you need to stay away and come back later, you know, when it's time for your hearing. And he obeyed. All right, so that seems like a kind of weird revolutionary who's trying to overthrow the government that he says, oh, okay, well, while I have my troops here carrying out my plan to overthrow the regime, I'm going to do what this judge told me and, and stay out. Uh, that, that, because otherwise I might get in trouble. And I don't want to, <laughs> that just to me seems, and also if you caught the part where he's being accused of domestic terrorism and they said because he used, you probably thought they were going to say some sort of, you know, explosives or what. No, it was misinformation, which we all know, you know, the very best terrorists, that's their key weapon. Fear and surprise and misinformation amongst their weaponry are such diverse elements as. 
Okay, so again, I understand it in, in a vacuum. If you thought we had a, a fair system and that the sentences made sense in terms of what the crimes were, that people would be convicted at in a very fair trial where um, you know the person had adequate legal defense and the, the system was not rigged against the evidentiary rules and such were not rigged against the defendant and it was a pretty open, above-board system. And then starting from that default, if the government occasionally deviated and said in particular cases, hey, just to streamline the process, it's a win-win, we save money, you save time and resolve uncertainty. What if we give you a lower sentence in exchange for your cooperation? I guess I could see that. But that's not the current system we have. The default is awful and it's not just in terms of what they're facing. So that's really not a way to exonerate what happens. And then the very last thing I'll say is part of the reason I believe those sentences, the default, that, oh, if this goes to trial and you get convicted, well, then you're just really screwed, my friend. The reason those sentences are like that, I believe, is partly because everybody knows for the vast majority of people, they're not going to actually have to serve that. Right? Even like right now, when you read in the paper about somebody being convicted of something, and this is what the prison sentence is, you don't actually think they're going to be in a prison for that whole time, right? You think that, oh, probably after seven years, you know, their lawyer's going to fight and it's going to come up for review and they're going to try to get leniency and blah, 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 and re early relief, right? That those numbers are kind of meaningless. It's almost like when you get bills from the hospital and you just know, okay, that's not what's coming out of my checking account. Insurance is going to adjust it and they're going to do this and this and that and then da, 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 right? So... Like those numbers don't even mean anything. So likewise, with our current system now, when you see those numbers, you don't even think that's real because you think, oh, there's all this. So I'm, but I'm saying because people know that, the various decision makers, I think that's partly why those numbers get so big is because they know they're going to be scaled back through various mechanisms. Okay, so it's not correct to argue, hey, you did the crime, you should be willing to do the time, and then if someone makes you, a, the DA and the cops make you a plea offer, plea deal, that's only benefiting you. It's just giving you more options because now you don't have to do what you, quote, deserve. That No, knowing that people are going to be offered this discount, I think helps increase what the original penalties are. So it's, it's not actually helping them out. Okay, well, that's a good spot to stop. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and I will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.